Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. really resonated with me because of the ideas that you were sharing and the questions that you were asking and then as a consequence of that I was really drawn to the things that you were saying and I wanted to find out more so to the list of possible areas of interest which all have a theme of social good and on all have a theme of you know deep human connection but some of the things I'd like to talk about is is uh, you work at Amy is that how you pronounce it it's AIM, yeah, AIM. AIM. So definitely want to talk about AIM and what you're doing there. Um, the imagination factory where kids are told they can. A curious tractor. I really want to talk about that one where uh, ideas are seeded, nurtured and harvested. Um, we can possibly touch on your work at Orange Sky, which for anyone outside of Australia is a service that connects people, often homeless people, through, through laundry. And uh, I'm really interested in the Queensland Correction Services work that you've done. And perhaps we can even get into working in a prison in Bolivia. So there's there's so much, um, way more than an hour's worth of content. Uh, Benjamin, welcome. Let's let's get into it. Thanks. Thanks so much for that. It's a bit awkward having to uh, listen to all of the various things that I've done in my life. And um, I usually refer back to uh, the words of my wife when it comes to this, which is... Um, why can't you just settle down and find something that you want to do when you've got so many shiny things around, but um, still working that out? Why is that? There's, uh, I, I, it's, it's hard to know where to start, but I think um, I grew up pretty middle class and it was a small town as Musselbrook, which is in the Hunter Valley. And I don't think I really understood what was going on in the world at all until I went overseas. So it's, it's almost like a quite a huge transition of my mindset when I left Australia starting in South Korea and that opened minds a little bit. But then we went through the Middle East, through Turkey, through South America um, and we ended up finding ourselves in places where the, the society and the culture was completely different to ours but also just never realized how um, tough people could have it in other countries. So it was really uh, an eye-opening experience and changed my trajectory for the next 10, 15 years. So I guess that set your radar on high for, for you know, people that are doing it tough. And I'd be interested in, so, so you, go, you go overseas and you see this and, and you're confronted by it, and then you come back to Australia and I would imagine that your, you know, with your radar now being set on high, did you start to see problems here that, that you felt that you could do something about? It's an incredible situation over, as, as you alluded to, um, had did some work in Bolivia in a prison and it was like life-changing, that opportunity. But then I, was, I needed to get a job. I needed to find a way to come back, um, it was like five years, three, three, four or five years of traveling. And it was like an anxiousness to work out, do you need to grow up? Um, do you need to find some stability? And all the people around me seemed to be getting younger and younger. Um, so I was on a call for a job with Queensland government whilst I was in Bolivia on a very bad line. 
I went for two jobs at the same time. It was um, a job in Arakoon in, in northern Queensland and then there was a job in Mount Isa. And for me, I think that... I think the pay was probably like 60 or 70 grand a year and I thought that was like the most amount of money I'd ever yeah. ever seen in my life to, to that point. I thought like would be set once I got a job like this and um, yeah, for some reason ended up getting the job in Mount Isa which started to um, bring me into contact with way more of that rural and remote um, country, country in the Gulf of Queensland and the thing that really astounded me was after traveling and meeting so many different different people from around the world, I'd never really sat and listened to our indigenous peoples or had the opportunity to spend days or weeks in a, in a community where there was so much history and so much um, so much work to be done in terms of how everyone can support the opportunity to find reconciliation or find opportunities to support in ways that are actually um, built around the knowledge and intelligence of the people that live there. So, yeah, ended up there in three three years of um, getting growled at and um, trying to understand how you can get past this, um, this culture and history of people going in and out of communities and promises being made and then this young fella comes up um, who's just been traveling around the world. Um, and I found myself in quite an awkward situation actually, because my first trip to Mount Isa, I never really talked about my background to the people up there. And then when I got back, um, I was talking to my boss in, in Mount Isa and she advised me that that amazing young indigenous fellow that came up to help us was, was really, was really world-class and then had to work out that, um, interesting puzzle of how I go about re-engaging and, and advising that, no, I'm not actually, uh, I don't have um, a background that I can find uh, that relates to uh, being Indigenous. So it was, a, but at, at the same time, it was amazing to feel that I was able to engage and have a connection that um, resulted in something like that. Because I was going to ask, if, if you were to give yourself a trust rating between 0 and 10 the first time you met them and then a trust rating, you know, kind of where you are now, what was the difference? But it actually sounds like that trust rating was really high from, from day zero. Yeah. Um, it's been as really interesting moments for me traveling around the world. I don't know what it is about whether it's my personality or my look, but I tend to get mistaken for most places that I go. Um, there was a moment where I was in, we were in Ecuador, we went to a football match and it was Ecuador versus Argentina. And um, I had long hair, had a beard. No one in Argentina has beards, uh, in Ecuador has beards, sorry. Um, and I thought oh, I better wear a scarf to try and like show that I support Ecuador and not get into any kerfuffles. And, Ended up passing that on to my wife because she was cold. And then as I went to the toilet, ended up getting wailed with a few punches in the back of the head and people yelling me at the Spanish, telling me that I'm not welcome here. You can um, you can get going. So, um, and like that kept happening over in different places, like through Egypt, through Syria, um, in Bolivia, um, which was actually a really like awesome opportunity, especially once, once I started speaking Spanish, the opportunity to actually feel connected to people in a different way. 
Um, but then also coming up to Australia, I was at a, um, I was doing a bit of wedding photography at one stage in my life and um, the, the, the master of ceremonies thanked Jonathan Thurston for coming and taking photos. Um, so it, there seems to be a, a, a pattern of um, some kind of connection that is able to be uh, connected to um, whether it's Indigenous peoples or um, a certain type of, of culture or whether it's just like a, and I'm still not sure whether it's personality or looks yet, but I'll just maybe go for looks. Yeah, who knows? But I, and subconsciously, whilst not a minority, on occasion being treated as a minority, must have shaped your views of the world somewhat and, you know, and the people ultimately that you spend a lot of time working with. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing I grapple with most in life and I, to be honest, never really found a community or a group of people who I felt like were um, my culture, my community. Um, I think it was a, a moment when I was younger. It was almost like a feeling of FOMO because I, I wasn't a minority and I, I saw culture and subculture occurring around me. And I think that's what um, has forced me to connect with so many different cultural things but at the same time I often feel like I'm skirting around the outside and that's that's I think that's the reason why I started photography especially because it gave me an outlet to use that as a skill and a gift and yeah I was able to connect really closely with the music industry and that was another like subculture or industry where I was I was there and I was in the back rooms and I was in the green rooms and I was around the artists and I was friends with them but um there was never a feeling like I was in the music industry <laughs> and I didn't never felt like there was a like a lifelong connection to that so as with most things it was like a period in my life not a central thing that's always been there or will be there I was looking through a window yeah looking through a window and finding like a way to express it in a different way. And that's that's really what I wanna continue to, to do. And I like, I'm definitely not a victim at all of anything, but I think there is a, um, there's something I have to work really hard on in being able to use that as a talent and a skill and a um, thing to support my livelihood or life or family, mm. because it's, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be um, polished or um, like fit within a brand guide or fit within like a communications um, strategy and um, yeah I, I, I want to spend the next um, 10 to 20 or whatever years um, working out what the difference is between telling a raucous wild story and making it connect with uh, more people I guess yeah and, and we'll get onto the raucousness in a minute because <laughs> I know you shared some stories around that. So very early on, you're getting a real empathy and an understanding of, of what it means to live in a marginalised way. How does that shape some of your subsequent choices around, you know, where you choose to put your effort and, and you know, earn, earn a living, but at the same time contributing to the areas that, that you're building up a deep understanding of? It was so interesting, like coming back from overseas and then starting straight up in a government organization was, I never thought that I'd end up something like that. Um, and subsequently now can't believe that I did it. Um, 
but that was safety. That was security. That was like a job that you had a contract and it was a salary. And for some reason, which often happens, there's this innate um, want for a personality like mine to be around that sort of programmatic feel because I'm the person they throw into the community. I'm the person they throw into like idea generation, innovation, um, or like when there's when there's like a, 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 a raucous, I'll say that again, thing to do. That's like Ben will definitely do that. Um, and then there, there's just not many people around, I don't think, that are willing to stand up in front of a, a group of um, people from a, any type of minority and sort of speak with or try to speak with authority and like try and engage in a way where they feel comfortable. Um, so that kind of... Um, it was awkward for like four years and they kept offering me these positions where it was like it was pretty like I thought it was good pay um and like there was always like a want to leave and my wife and I always wanted to like move or live a bit more alternatively or whatever but they kept like there were these oh you can be senior advisor now oh what about like principal advisor oh manager do you want to be manager next and it's such an easy like path to walk, and I think if you stay long enough, like you end up being director general, like <laughs> eventually. Um, but there was this moment; um, it was actually my wife's fault. She saw this um, advertisement for Orange Sky, and she's like, "This looks wow! This looks real cool." And I was doing some like freelancing or like pro bono work for like non-for-profits, just doing storytelling photos. And um, I just finished one um, that was related to uh, women coming out of the sex industry. I was like, I was ready for something else. And um, I just sent them an email. And then for some reason, straight up, like they got back to me. And um, I was a few weeks later out on an orange sky shift, talking with people experiencing homelessness. And it's just such a, like, it's such as a peaceful um, existence sitting around on, on, on orange chairs and talking with people who are obviously not um, not killing life at the moment and there's things going on. But, um, like, yeah, the only, the only word I can sort of um, pinpoint is this feeling of, um, like, everything standing still for a bit because there's an opportunity for someone to open up on what's happened so far in their life and it's just so amazing to be able to sit with people who don't get listened to ever because they have the most extraordinary things to say because they don't get to say it ever um and sometimes they're very politically charged sometimes they're inappropriate sometimes they're um like angry um uh, but there's some moments that are just really joyful when you get to hear someone you can actually feel people's like joy in talking with someone and you can like like walking away you notice that you feel different because yeah you didn't save their life but um you give them 30 minutes and it feels like a a, a life for them i think and and you were orange sky for about four years something like that yeah yeah about three or four years mm -hmm. yeah um nick and luke is the co-founders they um they just not too far before they got Young Australians of the Year and they were running around taking photos on their iPhones and 
still killing it because everyone loves them. But um, my role was kind of like to centralise what this brand was uh, at Orange Sky. And um, I think we hit on something really nice when it was a... I think it was just one photo of one person. The portrait was really close and it was um, we posted their words word for word and it just got an amazing um, amount of engagement and people were then commenting and um, saying, like, good on you talking to the actual person whose story it was and um, that felt like a, the right thing to do for a certain amount of years to try and work out there's like an intricate balance of campaigning versus storytelling <laughs> um, and often a very um, emotionally charged conversation that, with the marketing team about what, what story you're going to tell. Um, but I just loved the, 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 the opportunity to do it and um, put out stories I thought were the right ones to put out. And it feels like a pivotal mo moment in terms of shifting from someone who cares to someone who realizes that, that business and branding and sponsorship and money can then make a difference. That the concept of, of social good and you know some of the later things that you've done are, are very much along those lines. What, one thing I'd like to ask is the tension between yourself and the marketing department. So committed to the cause, spent time out there, you really understand what, what people are going through. What kind of conversations might you have where where someone's a little bit more reserved and goes, oh, I don't want to put this out into the into the public domain, and you're going, no, we need to do it. We need to do it. This is important. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a, a phrase that we always talk about, and it's um, talking with your feet, which means that um, you're out there doing the work. You're supporting people. Our insights going out in there. Um, they're supporting people through like doing the work with them. And then there's the other side, which is I, I always refer to it as like the, the Greenpeace syndrome, which is the advocacy behind it. Um, and how do you strike that balance to support um, your target audience that are supporting through donations and um, the, the organizations, the companies as well, versus a real story? Because there's not there's not a lot of magic stories out there that are someone's really hard done by because like everyone's just um, out to get them and they're trying their best to be the best person they can and it's like all about resilience and there's not a lot of like no one's that story. <laughs> everyone's everyone's a failure in some way. Everyone's like doing their best to, to live the best life they can but there's all of these barriers around them that some people care about and some people don't um so there's always a a fear of sharing something that casts a bad light on someone and it's like oh you're helping someone who's done something bad but i, I just see that as a huge opportunity in itself to be able to tell the story of someone who has stuffed up and then be able to explain the journey and dig into the depth of what's their psychology, what's happened to them and how have they worked through it because those are the stories that are the actual ones that help the people that are currently in the situation, which I mostly concentrate on. Um, and, like, I, th I think that's always going to be a, 
a really hard thing for me to work through is uh, an acceptance of um, supporting things to grow from a resource perspective and supporting a message to be the right one or the one that I like to tell. Um, yeah, something I probably will never work out. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm really keen to, to, to give it a crack. I think we're all always the unfinished article. And interestingly, I think we all have barriers and we all have flaws and we, we all have things that that can block us from achieving our potential. But some people's barriers, by virtue of, of pure luck in terms of where they start their journey, some people's barriers are way harder to overcome. And some people have more barriers because of the environment that they've come through. And I think it's really important to be charitable enough to understand that we probably bring all of our problems on ourselves. But I'm lucky enough to have had a decent start. So the problems I've given myself haven't been life-changing. But they could just as easily have been, depending on what, what my starting point was. So, right. Um, I, like, and I've actually found myself just like erring more and more towards um, the people that are in some of the hardest periods of their life. And it's probably like on purpose, which is support, like working on how the, the youth justice and um, criminal justice system's going and the people in it. So, um, and I don't know, sometimes I tell myself it's because I feel like I could be one of them. Um, and going back on a, on a similar topic of like looks or whatever. Um, I could not tell you the amount of times I've sat down in an orange, orange chair and someone's asked me where am I sleeping at the moment, um, which I often take as a compliment um, because that's like um, my my pride in my identity comes from like what's going on inside. So um, I'm sorry about that to my wife though. I think I should, I could, I could improve in those areas, but um, it's that, yeah, it's that accessibility of, of, of someone's, like how they feel about the next person is, is most, what's most important at the moment. So Orange Sky is really teaching you the, the value of social good and social good businesses. And, and then did you move from there to AIM? Yeah. So I read, I read it up on AIM and, and there's, there's some resonance with, with my role in higher ed and you talked about activation spaces and, and the big message was, you know, you can. You know, you're, you're a child in a marginalised society. Don't think you can't, you can. What does, what does it look like in terms of what you do day to day in AIM and, and how it changes people's lives? Probably need another podcast for this one. Um, I'll do my best, we'll see. Um, it's an incredible place to work. Uh, it's the most challenging place I've ever worked. It's the most I've learnt ever in my life. Um, it challenges me because uh, we've got a founder, his name's Jack Manning Bancroft. He's been doing it for almost 20 years now. And to work with someone who has been in this type of system and trying to change a system for that long, he has a incredible amount of understanding of the issue that not many people do and aim's global isn't it yeah so aim has um, staff all over the world um, about five years ago now we started a program in in africa there's staff now they're going to universities and schools to support kids there and um, there's 
uh, and Ain Inc. So there's a, a, a sort of crew in the US as well who's supporting stuff. And then we we launched something called Imagination University, which was for kid, marginalized kids around the world. So ended up having like 52 countries involved in that. So there's just such a huge spectrum of engagement that occurs to try and solve this issue of how do you create intelligence from outside the margins and put it at the forefront of people's minds and opportunities for innovation and how do you create a shift in thinking with the bigger companies in the world to understand how they get access to that intelligence. And it's based in places, right? It's in schools in Nairobi, it's in like universities in Paris, it's like in the kids' three-year class in Burke. They're all opportunities to learn about it the activation of that for a, for, for a general person in Australia to be like, I'm going to go and mentor some kids at school. It's just a huge barrier of why do I want to go get sworn at by this kid who doesn't want me there in the first place? Um, how do you create an understanding for the person that has the job to do, which is the mentor, which is we see as like the ultimate citizen to be able to go through a process of understanding what they need to do before they even get to that classroom. And AIM's been, um, it's done a, a huge amount of work in capturing that intelligence. There's a lot of books that have been written. There's a lot of videos and case studies and cinema type things that have, that have happened. And then there's just this huge collection of, you would probably call them case studies of how uh, a person that was a mentor, mentee um, through the program is now a co-CEO of mm -hmm. the company. And how can that be duplicated thousands of times in, in other contexts? So the primary strategy of AIM is, is the concept of mentorship. And like you said, not everyone's cut out to be a mentor. Either they, they don't have the inclination or they don't have the skills. So that, that, that gives me a couple of questions that I'm interested in. And we'll, we'll start with the, for if you're not cut out for it, what can someone who's not cut out for it but cares do to help AIM achieve its objectives? So it's a very like um, good conversation to be having right in the middle of um, working out what's next. And there's, there's so many concepts to dig into, but one of them is we we actually have put a death plan in place for the organisation, so in 10 years we cease to exist and everything that's been created is, is shared in an open source way to support the world to be able to understand how to go about these things. The, the one thing that everyone can do is probably the hardest thing to do, which is be open to digging really deeply into what's already happened over the last 20 years and to do it with um, an understanding that there's 60,000 years of knowledge to dig into and it's not going to be one book, one podcast, one experience that gets you there. And like AIM's got these uh, 18 values that every time I say 18 from a corporate perspective, everyone's like, oh, you can't 
can't do 18 because you need to remember them and needs to be three and needs to be like strong. Um, but those values actually all mean how much complexity and effort you need to go through to be able to understand like what, what, what comes next. And the one that always um, sticks out to me is, um, is this concept of failure time. And it's like a buzzword in corporate land, right? You've got to fail to like do better or learn from it or whatever. But I think at AIM it really does mean like stuffing up really bad. And then um, there's this opportunity. There's one of the other values is forgiveness. So there's a huge opportunity to do the absolute best that you can and understand that when you fail, it's cool. There's forgiveness if you stuff up. And then there's like this huge wave of energy and excitement that's ready for you on the other side. And like if you ever get to ex- get to experience a, an AIM factory day or even like an event where AIM staff is there, you get to feel that energy and excitement. And it's really pulling the kid up the back of the class that is not having a good time and hates education, hates school. It's like pulling them up and lifting them up and then like, offering them that bridge to whatever they want to do but the biggest key to that is they need to meet you halfway there's no there's no free ride at aim what does an aim factory day look like it looks pretty crazy so we we uh, luckily enough uh, hoyts have given us a, a cinema in moore park in sydney which is pretty exciting but yeah for 18 years it's rocking up to a school so Kids go through mentoring. It's like a 10-week program. They have a one-to-one mentor and that's all about lifting them up. But then there's a celebration that occurs and when kids graduate and that's bringing all the schools together to one place. And it's lights, it's DJs, it's dancing, it's like failure time. It's this, you do shred the shame where you write your shame down, you rip it up, you throw it in the air. It's the opportunity to push whatever's happened over those last 10 10 weeks right to the edge and the kids are ready then and they're ready to celebrate and they're dancing and it's almost like this feeling of um i'm ready for the next thing like i'm pumped and yeah we, we want them to be able to understand that it's it's their time now like they get to whatever comes next they take the next step and they take the next challenge and um, where mentors, not saviors. So once that's done, we take off and it's over to the mentee to, to become a mentor one day and hopefully do the same thing. Yeah, and focus on the next one. I imagine one of those days is quite raucous. Pretty, yeah, pretty raucous. Like every day at AIM is raucous. We, it's, way, it's way too much Zoom time. Um, but it's... Um, It's it's really it's it's really hard to explain what I do every day because it, it's everything. <laughs> um, my role's supposed to be head of communications or something or head of design or whatever, but it's really just um, actually Jack um, mostly says that my role is to cut copy paste because um, there's so much going on that there needs to be someone there to put it somewhere and know where it is. <laughs> So we can come back to it and share it later. I imagine you're building quite a legacy and there's 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 quite a lot of IP and lessons that you've learned 
I guess it's really important that that isn't lost. Yeah, I, it's um, yeah, it's I, I'd encourage everyone to to dig in and 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 dig into aim and have a look at the depth of it. It's um, we're very much now moving into the realms of um, indigenous knowledge systems thinking and nature as the the core element of what we want everyone to get, um, and we want everyone to know that the um, the time to activate is is now to support um, the climate and the world and everyone. And there's there's already heaps of intelligence out there that we can use to do it. We just have to listen and we need to like engage. Um, so yeah, that's gonna be the next 10 years is um, doing everything we can to support an understanding of how this like intelligence from outside the margins, how indigenous knowledge systems and those things come to the forefront. Um, Jack talks about, and, and uh, I don't know if you know Tyson Younger Porter, he, he's in the Indigenous Knowledge Labs with Jack, and he talks about um, this mindset of Indigenous knowledge sitting behind um, two like hands, and we, it's in, in the background. We need to work out how that sits on top of everything as a layer, mm. so that it starts with that, and then that gives a, a framework to be able to support things from like a, a natural nature um, background rather than like building AI robots to um, to make sure everyone doesn't have to work ever again. <laughs> and who knows if that will happen. And I, I, I'm going to try not to talk about AI in this podcast, <laughs> although we might do because it, this is the fourth one I've recorded and I've talked about, if I talk about it in this one, it will be the third one yeah. that I've talked about AI. Yeah. I said I had two questions before. And the second one was, how do you scale what you do at AIM so that you can achieve more with, with you know meager resources? But I almost wonder, based on what you said, whether that's a valid question. Because if you have a death plan, it sounds like your vision isn't to scale so that you can keep keep hitting the same problem and trying to fix it. It sounds like you're trying to weave the solution into the fabric of society. And you know, with aim focusing on marginalised people and and, and in indigenous peoples in in education, what you just said there about moving the hands from the back to the front. It, would I be right in saying that you're actually trying to, 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 to eradicate the problem, you know, much earlier? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it all comes back down to um, systems change, and it, there's a there's a process to make systems change happen. And the one thing we're working on is what's the spark? Where does the spark occur for an idea? And so we're looking at this idea of this um, digital country called imagination, where a million people from outside the margins like c collect together to come up with new ideas and they're supported by schools and organizations and um, like citizens and universities to make that happen but the idea is that when there's a spark and it's like starting to light a fire that's where aim can step in as a there's a framework there to be able to like take that idea and take it to the next level um, a concrete example is we had a, a podcast with Damon Gamo from Regen Studios and they were talking about seaweed fabric. And we, um, once the podcast finished, we looked into what seaweed fabric was, how to make it, made a seaweed hoodie, and now we're um, working to raise a million dollars to um, reforest Sydney's coastline with crayweed um, through University of New South Wales. So that was a process of emergence which, which came about from uh, a connection we always look at unlikely connections as the way in which these sparks happen um, that, that turn into fires. 
and then um, had a conversation linked with uh, university and now um, hopefully with by October um, we would have um, have enough shareholders of the ocean to be able to support that to happen because a million dollars is really not that much um, money to be able to like reforest the whole coastline so um, hopefully everyone starts to realize that pretty soon. That would be an incredible outcome. How important are connections and relationships with institutions like universities? Yeah, it's complex, I think. Um, like when AIM started, I think the whole the whole um, the push and the outcomes were based on getting Indigenous kids into uni, right? Because um, not enough were, were, were had that pathway into university. Um, but there's also this challenge of like what what's being taught and what where's the intelligence coming from what the young kids then are able to engage with to um to, to go into the workforce or whatever but I, I think universities have a central especially universities have a, a central opportunity to have the that sixty thousand years of knowledge as a an undercurrent across the whole community landscape and the way in which a young kid who comes in from a remote community goes to uni and then to come in and see their culture celebrated and activated as a central core tenant and their confidence building because um, they have a kinship or a, a bloodline or a country that they then get to um, have as part of their uh, education and part of their uh, relations with people is really important and this um yeah this opportunity of this uh, concept of unlikely connections is is a huge one because the more I often see it with my kids and it's like all I wanted to do is have open mind and to be curious about the kids in their school and their class who are different to them and for them to lean into what happens if I talk to them what happens if I invite them to my house like what what can I do to learn more about what's going on and we always talk about what questions do you ask and how are you um, respectful in those questions and, yeah, how do you create um, a level of comfort in someone else because by asking them specific questions, you're actually letting them, like, their confidence grow themselves. Um, it comes back to, like, I was talking about sitting on an orange chair. It's like there's nothing better, nothing better feeling of feeling like your, um, your experience or, or, or your life is... Um, prompting curiosity you, you feel like you're a bit of a celebrity for the moment because someone's interested in you and you get to do this type of stuff <laughs> that's beautiful the conversations that you have with your kids and talking about what questions to ask i love that are there any questions that you can't ask it's a it's a bold question it's like that abc show right um, uh, you can't ask that. I think um, that, and yeah, it does come back to how much you've tried already, I think, in terms of wanting to engage with someone in a way where they feel comfortable. And I would say there's no question that you can't ask. I would say the approach and your effort previous to asking the question is the most important thing. It's um, it's so amazing to see the difference between um, like going to another country and, and sitting next to someone 
who is obviously has a much harder life than you and understanding how you slowly engage and understand that person's um, like that person's history and life and background and culture. And then you can ask anything you want because there is a, I'll try not to say this too much, but there is like a, a, a raucous opportunity that happens when you get tight enough with someone to be able to joke about things that are actually really tough and what they're going through. And I got to experience that when traveling around in remote communities because it probably took two years, but there was some fellas up there that you would get so close to that you would be talking about the worst things in the world and laughing about it. Um, and some of the stuff that happens up there just gets to the edge of reality and hearing people sort of sitting around and laughing about it is gets really tough to deal with, but um, it's because they have that relation and that trust and that confidence and supporting each other um, that they're able to do that. And it's the same as like, I, um, like I got a group of friends from university and we still hang around and they're in Brisbane, whatever. And it's just this feeling of, like if we met now, we wouldn't wouldn't hang out really, wouldn't hang out with them at all. But there's a family connection now and it's like a closeness that every conversation just turns into you ribbing on each other or like giving each other a hard time because there's that's, that's the point of life that you're at. So maybe it's like that same moment, micro moments with other people where you find that that right moment to ask that raucous question. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you as the questioner needs to work up to that and do the work before you can do that. And it's all about the rapport. A question I'd like to ask you, as a, a white Englishman rapidly getting up to speed with, with living in Australia and what I need to know about Australians' history, what does reconciliation mean to the people that you've spent a lot of time with? Yeah, that's... So it's a, it's always a really difficult one to answer because I, I I didn't I haven't necessarily engaged in the the political side of what that really means or spent too much time um, debating uh, with people in an academic sense or anything. But I think from a from a community perspective, it's understanding that people are willing to do stuff that helps them <laughs> in a really like that's a very simplistic way to put it but just to be able to hang out with people in community and like the questions that they might ask around like a minister or a government or what help they're getting it's not necessarily based on money or like um, what they should be getting it's based around people understanding what's going on um, and I think when you engage in a way where they can feel connected with your effort to understand what's going on and be willing to sit in a circle for three hours talking in circles yarning about everything going fishing all that stuff like not everyone has to do that but I think there should be a a, a want or a need to really spend the time to understand what's going on and when there is an opportunity to talk with someone just listen and do your best to like take it all in. Um, 
and then once you feel like you're ready to do something then do it like get out there and whether it's going and visiting somewhere or whether it's um aligning some of your thinking in a in a room and sometimes i often think that the best reconciliations happens around like a barbecue or a table where you get to sit with a group of friends where you're comfortable with and challenge each other's expectations on what they should do just like we're doing now i guess um and like the next time where you're having a conversation where you're challenged maybe listen for a bit first rather than jumping in with a um with an opinion on, on what should happen i agree i think the power's all in the question and listening to the answer yeah yeah that's right i'm i think i'm out of form too with the listening i was in community i was like in top form i was like i think i spoke one to every 10 words out there i reckon but um I think I'm like been spending too much time in the city. I'm a silly fella now on the Zoom calls, just talking too much rubbish. It's it's a skill, and you know one of the reasons I launched a podcast in a world that's saturated with podcasts is because of what I'll personally get out of it. So I'll get access to people to have really interesting conversations, and, I, and it'll expand my horizons, and I'll learn more. But I'll also learn how to do things better. I'll learn how to listen better because it's a skill. It's a skill at home. It's a skill at work. And that will take time. But having the opportunity to practice that on a repeated basis is so valuable to me. Yeah, especially with kids. I find myself wanting to tell them what to do or guiding them or giving them advice. But sometimes you just like have to sit back and watch it all happen and like wait for them to fall over and like them for it to learn themselves and then tell you how to do it better um yeah and there's really cool research that nasa did on creativity with kids um they had this spectrum of creativity at a test that they um, provided to people and they gave it from over one to five to 90 years old and what they found out was this is like amazing like curve that just happens where it's like creativity is at its peak at about five years old and slowly 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 it starts to like get less steep less steep and then craters into the ground because you lose your sense of fun and play and that's replaced with what you think you know and there's just this huge opportunity to stay tight with that feeling of play and um be able to take that into a meeting room or whatever and almost remove this feeling of expertise confidence like wanting to be this like smartest person in the room and replacing it with something that um, is abstract or something that is um, not being thought about at that time and um, yeah I think that's a balance I play every day because there's times that goes really bad (laughs) <laughs> and there's times where uh, that actually creates uh, the, the change that's required. We could talk about parenting forever and a day. It's, it's, it's such an amazing subject. And I, I think when you have kids, it does cause you to think a lot more and think a lot more about the world that they live in and the environment. One of the interesting things about, about um, how much you tell and how much you guide and how much you let kids make mistakes I always reflect on my childhood and a, and a friend of mine's childhood called Booman. Shout out to Booman. So my dad, and I love my dad dearly, he 
he would do things for me. Um, you know, he either didn't have the patience or he couldn't bear to see me mess something up and he would do a lot of things for me. And as a consequence, I'm very unpractical. Uh, I'm getting better as I get older, but I'm not great at fixing stuff and doing stuff around the house and things like that. My friend Booman, his stepdad had the patience to watch him fail and he'd watch him build a mo- build an engine on a motorbike and put the nut in the wrong place and say, well, you better undo it again and you better take it apart. Booman's an engineer. Uh, you know, so, so the, and and I don't think that's any coincidence in terms of where he's ended up and where, where I've ended up. Patience is and patience with children and patience with people that you're leading and patience with people that you're working with. That's a learned skill, but critical. Yeah, I think that's probably my could be one of my worst traits. I reckon is the patience piece. Um, and yeah, I I, I, I really respect. Um, Nick, the fellow I started a curious tractor with, who's also co-founder in Sky, his um, his opportunity to find patience because it's um, he has one of those minds where it just goes, and sometimes he'll send you six ideas and you wonder how to keep up, and then at other times he's almost mentoring you on how to slow down. Um, so that pace of um, the opportunity to be able to like understand how to do that is still something I'm working on, but um, it's. It's really hard, I think, and like coming back to that creativity thing, it's you want to yell at people sometimes because they're doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and yeah, there's a bit of creativity that goes in how to how to support someone to understand how to think differently about something. Um, and like the last thing about parenting, I reckon, is like I think. You just need to stop thinking sometimes. <laughs> Let it happen with uh, with kids, and um, there's so much debate on how that how that works, or like um, positive or negative or psychological. But um, I, I do believe in the power of um, running your own path and um, being being supported to do that. And um, still challenge myself every day as to how much you should be pushing as a parent, you know what I mean? And how much like that affects like success in inverted commas. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think if there was any metric of success that I would be striving for, for, for my kids and my family, it would be just an acceptance of, of life, um, acceptance of other people and openness to take whatever comes and, Get out the next day and try again. Sound values. You haven't lost your creativity. The content that you put out on on LinkedIn as a platform, which is which was where we met, full of ideas, thoughts, questions that you're putting out into the universe, and and that's really really interesting. Um, and I guess that goes to the creation of a curious tractor. So I'd like to know a little bit more about that as a, as a side gig and you know where you're taking it and, and what you aim to achieve through it. Yeah, this is really pertinent, I reckon. This, maybe if if Nico can write all this down, then we can have a business plan. Um, yeah, so like I suppose Nick and I are hanging out since Iron Sky and like I watched him be really um, successful in the way in which he approached Iron Sky um, and 
he's always had a, a mindset where you can achieve success and you can also um, have a grounding and a values that um, is like creating impact, like supporting change. That's, that's the, the crux of it. And there's, I was wondering, like I've always got something going on, whether it's photos or some kind of business support randomness or like starting some design agency or whatever. Um, and yeah, I was just working out this opportunity to maybe have like some kind of business support thing, do strategy, do like make websites for people or whatever. And I started doing it and I was like, oh, this is kind of fun, but it's not, I don't think it's going to like result in um, uh, fulfilling any of my inbound need, like deep needs. And then Nico's got a farm now in Witter and he's put some places up there for people to stay. And he rang me one night and said, do you want to just do something together? And like, of course I thought about it because I talk about stuff all the time, but um, never really thought that it was right because we're good mates, mix business with pleasure, like not a good idea. But I think there's this understanding between us where we, it, I've never worked um, with someone like this where there's an inbound trust of how to go about things and like I'm quite ruthless with um, like project management or planning or like using the right tools or building it like this and there's always like a, a there's always like a really tough organizational challenge with doing that stuff it's like oh you gotta use Asana if you can't use Asana oh, you're rubbish I don't want to work with you. you you use it differently than me like I hate that um, but working with Nico, we're kind of just running at stuff and it's anything. And then we text each other what we're doing and we work across all different platforms or whatever. And it's all okay. Like so far. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's how I really want to be able to work um, the rest of my life is to be able to have a f the freedom to work in the way that is most comfortable because that's fast and it's like um you have a really good way of like understanding your capacity you can push yourself as far as you want to and there's no like um there's no worry about like this person's not doing that or this person's not doing that or they won't be able to do that so um what we're really trying to achieve is like support each other to continue to innovate as fast as possible. And it's really hard because there's all these models that we could go go down, but I think at the end of the day, our model is find a problem and work out a solution together. And the closer we have been in experience to the project we're trying to achieve, I guess the faster we'll do it or the better it will be. Um, but we don't wanna get ourselves trapped into like just one thing, it's 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 everything. Who who would be a typical beneficiary of a curious tractor? Would people come to you and say, "I'm a small business, I'm, you know, I'm I'm part of a marginalised community. I need help. Can you help me?" Or would you 
find problems yourself to solve? I think like kicking off now, it's almost like um, seeding anything. And that's what that's what like we do. It's like Nick has a huge network. And I think he hears little drops of seeds that are sitting on the, the top of the soil. They're not doing anything. It's just ready to like heart, like put into the ground and, and water and like support it to grow. And I think that's the, the kind of approach that we take is we're listening and there's always some type of um, missing piece or some type of opportunity where from our experience we see that, oh, that's cooked as. Why don't we try this? And it's usually a conversation, an email, like a Zoom call with someone that's like, um, oh, Nick and Ben's skills, they fit right in here. But it needs to be really like concrete and like have outcomes that are really specific the one the one thing i'm most excited about at the moment is um i'm working with a fella his name's joe kwan he spent about nine years in prison um running too much ecstasy around the world and he started something called um confit it's a personal training business and now he's started confit pathways which is a pathway for young kids to come out of um, juvenile justice and into um, something where they can be trained up to run their own business. And he's getting heaps of like support and he's got a great brand. He's like super pumped. And there's a real like missing piece for him, which is I can get to about the X amount of kids with the staff I have and the experience I have. I can't build my staff very quickly because um, getting working with children's check for my cohort which is people coming out of prison it's pretty freaking hard so what he's missing is a digital layer to be able to um, compound his impact across australia so we're working on an opportunity to build um, an application or a digital layer where kids coming out of prison can engage with a mentor but then like have someone 24 7 pretty much that can support them through their journey into what they want to do next. And he's got the model, he's got the character, he's got the brand. He just needs this to be able to like scale it. And like, I've never seen a, uh, a criminal justice based program with as much like energy and excitement. And it's just so rad when there's something on offer for kids where they think it's cool. Because you're like, you get out of prison and you're like, oh, this government program and I'll have to go because it's good for my order. And I'll try and get this job. I'll go for 10 of them. hate them all. But then to have this experience if this fella comes in and shows you how to do push-ups and chin-ups. And then, and then you're like, I could be like him. And then um, having an opportunity to like scale that to other industries, super exciting. Um, yeah, I get pretty excited about that one. So That's, That's the beauty of technology, the ability to scale. I said I wasn't going to talk about AI. I clearly lied. Can you imagine a situation where it's the middle of the night and you have access to a mentor and you're having a bit of a wobble and you really need to speak to someone and, and they're not available, but you've got an app and you can connect with a virtual mentor. And I, and I think this is genuinely possible within a very near time frame. That person can connect with you and can provide an opportunity to give you the advice you need to, to stop that wobble, taking you down a path you don't want to go down in the middle of the night. It's a bit scary. Um, 
but that's an opportunity where technology really can be for good. Exactly. I, I'm pretty obsessed at the moment with how much resources get spent on support services as a, let's just say support services as a classification. Um, I don't want to say government, but um, like how much resources gets put towards that. And what if you took a little chunk of that and expediated the opportunity to engage people in a really efficient way, that's scalable, and you can start now. <laughs> like, I don't know how much is being put towards this, but like, I would bet it's not much yet. And I, th I think there's probably a bit of a fear of the like job situation and take my job, whatever. But there's a huge opportunity to be able to like think about for the for the young kids to be able to have access to this stuff and it's solving a huge issue and that's a, a connection issue they're so disconnected and there's such a like it'd be so interesting to be able to trial this how do you move towards a world where this ai technology is personal and it's based on the, the way they like to be engaged and it's tested really quickly because you have so much data really quick um and then that leads to that activation in the real world because there's all this research about like addictions especially like video games and video games aren't actually that bad for you but there's two different types of gamers there's like one where they enter the world and they're like loving it because they're in it and they're escaping the real world. And once they finish the gaming, they're like depressed because they're out of the game and they don't take anything that happened inside the game into their life. And then there's the gamer that plays the game, has fun, learns stuff, does stuff, like whatever. And then they take that with them and it's a continuation of that experience. And I think that's the key with technology, especially when it's a support-based thing. It's like, you're not going to escape. You're not going to solve your problem. You're going to have an experience that helps you grow. And when you leave, that experience helps you in that next connection that you have with a human and with people and with jobs and all that type of stuff. So the future's relatively rosy. We have some real opportunities ahead of us. I've spent all of my life in, in corporate world, corporate UK, corporate Australia. If you were to have one ask of corporate Australia today that, that they could do that could influence any of the things that are important to you, what would that ask be? I think carefully about this one. I think it is, um, it's like a, a message of dig deeper, like move past what you think works and sprint more at things you think won't work to be able to understand why they don't work. I, there's, like I see, whenever I engage with someone on an idea, a lot of time there's energy around it because it's like Nick and I are pretty wild and they're like, oh, these guys, 
so many ideas and it's almost overwhelming for them. They're like, there's this like thing people say just about every time where it's like, geez, you guys have lots of ideas. Let's like give me two weeks and I'll come back with something, but they never do. And I think it's like, how do you create an opportunity to find that little slice of resource to be able to run at these things that not many people might support, but it might activate a huge amount of difference. And it's kind of like the, what, how the venture capital world works, right? Run at a thousand things, one thing works and you're golden. <laughs> but there's not enough of that thinking that happens within government or like um, within slower corporate worlds where there's a risk tolerance to be able to activate something that um, looks a bit raucous, but might might end up um, either helping um, someone who's doing it tough or might end up making them a ton more money. <laughs> um, but it's, there's got to be that. There's got to be that movement and momentum. And I don't know if it's a resourcing thing, like a recruitment thing where you have to recruit people that are a bit more wild um, or whether it's like a procedure or process type of thing. But um, yeah, that appetite I think should get stronger and stronger. I think risk tolerance and 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 brand exposure or brand impact is, is a significant factor. I think a lot of corporate Australia choose similar causes because because they're safe. They can they can make a difference and they can do some good and being associated with it is a good thing. I, I'd possibly like to see a bit of a risk tolerance to to diversifying the causes and perhaps things that are a little bit more raw and and you know perhaps a little bit more risky to your brand, but you can make such a big a big difference. Let's finish on on raucousness and the in, the in joke around raucousness that you posted on LinkedIn is you were chastised for overusing this word, um, and, and I don't understand why. What does it mean to you? I think I think it typifies your approach to to business. Yeah, it's it's pretty much everything to me because I felt like I I don't feel like I have a lot to give in the world of like intelligence or really concrete experience in one thing because I moved to so many things and like I'm not going to be the person to come to that is the expert in the thing but the one thing I can always take with me is energy and I've just been able to use it as such an awesome tool to not only work out how I can do interesting projects because people are like, this guy's a bit wild. Um, let's give him, let's give him a, a little go. We'll watch him real carefully. But I think the, the thing that I definitely want to do for the next 10 or 20 years is use this raucous behavior to be able to like have people that are outside the margins or like doing it tough or like people aren't listening or stuff and just hang out with them, tell their story, like build a, build a connection with them um, and even if nothing happens, maybe for an hour they had a good time. <laughs> and But on the other hand, maybe it turns into an understanding from someone else that then offers them an opportunity to use that as a skill and not have it as a, as a weight. Fantastic. Benjamin, I really appreciate you giving me the time and giving me some exposure to the things you've been involved in, the things you're passionate about and, and the differences that you're making today. If people are interested in finding out some more, what's the best way to get hold of you? 
Yeah, um, I'm pretty useless on social media. I, I am on LinkedIn, um, so you can you can do it that way. We do have a website. It's um, act.place. Uh, that's probably the best way to get in touch. And, yeah, Nick and I would love to have a, a raucous yarn. I'll link those in. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. 